When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to the 133rd episode of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. I am your host, Mac B. The Wolf, welcoming you here. And I will be joined, as always, here very shortly by my partner in crime from the East Coast of the U.S., Gary Action Jackson. And we appreciate you tuning in last week to our show on Yes, the Tormato Story, the new book by Kevin Mulrine who is also the co-host of the Yes Music Podcast. Got a lot of great downloads and a lot of great interactions from Yes fans on that. And I'm going to tell you here, folks, you don't even have to be that big of a Yes fan or that big a fan of the album Tormato to really enjoy it, going into all the detail that he went to on the studios, the instruments, the way the cover was created. Just a brilliant book, amazing in-depth detail, and it was a real pleasure to talk to Kevin about that. So if you haven't heard that one, I would encourage you to do so. Now, if you did listen to last week's show, you might have heard in the sign-off that we were going to be welcoming Mick Wall on the show, the legendary rock writer who has a new book coming out in July on the Eagles. I believe it's called Life in the Fast Lane, which is coming out July 11th, which is a brilliant book, and we want to talk to you about it and let you hear from Mick, the questions we have for him, and the fun conversation that we had with him. Fact of the matter is, folks, I'm moving back to America, and I've been in the midst of moving into a new house. And I got a lot going on, and some time has gotten away from me here, so I want to be able to do justice to Mick in that episode, and I want to be able to maybe share some of the videos of our chat with you on our YouTube and our social media pages, so I had to put that on the back burner for a minute and bring to the front an episode that I already had ready. This is one that we recorded maybe six or so months ago, certainly five months ago, but I was living in Europe. As we prepared for the 40th anniversary of the release of Asia's second album, Alpha. People who listen to the show know that me and Jackson have a very, very soft spot in our hearts for Asia. The prog pop band made up of prog legends like John Wetton from King Crimson and Uriah Heep and UK. Like Jeff Downs of The Buggles and, yes, Steve Howe of Yes and Carl Palmer of Emerson Lake and Palmer. Hit it big in 1982 with their debut, Asia, powered by Heat of the Moment, the single that went to number one on the charts for many weeks in America and was actually the number one selling album in the U.S. in 1982. People always freak out when I tell them that. It's absolutely the truth. Then they kind of got rushed back in the studio. Geffen and the record company kind of said, all right, we got to get part two out as quickly as they can. So they went back to the studio in Canada, Cranked out Alpha. It did have a big hit in Don't Cry on it, and they had an epic video about it that we'll talk about on the show, but it did not live up to the hype and success of the first album. However, at the end of 1983, to help bolster the sales of the record, David Geffen engineered with MTV the first satellite transmission of a live concert from around the world from Japan. They did Asia in Asia, which was a really big deal at the time, and technologically, very difficult to pull off. Now, thankfully, about this time last year, folks, 
We got to speak to Jeff Downs and Carl Palmer really within about a week of each other. It was when the Asia in Asia box set was coming out. And so we not only got to talk about, to them about what was going on with them at the time, Carl touring uh, with his ELP tribute, and Jeff doing the Close to the Edge 50 tour with Yes, but we got to relive some of these Asia memories. And so we've got some nice snippets of those conversations within the show, as well as me and Jackson going track by track and giving you some snippets of these songs, which again, we really love. No, it's not quite as great as the first album, but often we listen to them together, back to back. And so this one's celebrating its 40th anniversary. We thought it'd be a good time to share with you our thoughts and memories on Asia Alpha and hear from the guys who made it. But first, we got a little bit of business to take care of. As usual, we like to remind you that we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, a network of about 100 different music shows. Not all rock, but it's all, there's something in there for everybody. And you can go to pantheonpodcast.com to check them all out. There is an app where you can get most all the shows on there, uh, and you can follow at Pantheon Pods. But we have to thank our sponsors, rarevinyl.com. Guys, Father's Day is coming up. You deserve something special, and you can find it at rarevinyl.com. They've got over a quarter million items in stock, and they ship all over the world. And if you use the code UGLY, U-G-L-Y, then you can save 10% off your orders. And look, I've bought some cool stuff from rarevinyl.com. In fact, I bought some cool Asia stuff. Some first edition releases, some picture discs, some stuff from foreign countries, stuff you can't just find everywhere. So you go there, find something that you want, something that you love, something you've been looking for for a long time, use the code UGLY, save 10%. So if the wife, the kids are thinking about getting you something, just say, hey, go to this website. Here's what I want. Use this code and you'll save 10% off your order. And no matter where you are, from Tennessee to Timbuktu, they will ship it to you. They take great care at rarevinyl.com. Great team there. So check out rarevinyl.com. Save yourself 10% by using the code UGLY. Now back to Alpha. It was a real pleasure to be able to talk to Jeff Downs and Carl Palmer about not only their time in Asia, but that tour of Japan in late 83 that resulted in the Asia in Asia broadcast on MTV. Groundbreaking, first of its time, but it was kind of a strange time in the band in that John Wetton had just exited. They had to bring Greg Lake in to take his place, and although he performed admirably, it just didn't sound quite right, and that's why I think it wasn't as big a hit as it should have been. And it's why I avoided it for a while, to be quite honest with you. But I've come around to it now, because it's still a special time in the history of Asia, and a special time in my life as a young man just starting to get into music. So this is going to be a bit of a long one here, but it's because there's a lot of love in this episode. And there's a lot of good snippets of sounds and interviews with Carl Palmer and Jeff Downs. So why don't we go ahead and get into it, folks. This is me and Jackson talking about Asia's Alpha at 40, right here on The Wolf. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So I almost instantly regret, I mean, usually we start, we give ourselves an hour and a half, which is plenty of time for us to kind of BS a little bit and then get to the business at hand. And I, I said, we're going to start early. We're going to start 15 minutes early on this one because, you know, we're not going to be able to shut up about this one, right? This is going to take a while. And then I said, right. nah, no, look, this isn't the first Asia album. This is alpha, right? This doesn't need as much time. And then getting into it, I'm like, yeah, we're going to wish we had those 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Well, we'll do it to it. So let's just jump right in. And then if we, if we finish early, great. I doubt it happens because I know what happens when we get together. <laughs> so here we are talking about Alpha. Mm -hmm. The second album by Asia released July 26, 1983 on Geffen Records. The follow-up to the huge debut of the supergroup Asia album, 1982, which featured Heat of the Moment, Only Time Will Tell, and is a personal favorite of ours. Right. Yeah. Big impact at 82. Thanks to MTV. Thanks to David Geffen and John Kalotner pushing them out there. They sold 10 million copies of Asia around the world. 4 million in the U.S. alone. So it's like quadruple platinum U.S., triple platinum Canada, platinum in Japan because Japan is in Asia. And so Geffen's like, awesome. 10 million? We could send, we, I bet we could sell 10 or 12 million of the second one. Let's crank it out there, you know, and... I mean, this is just one of those times where you're trying to treat art like widgets. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it worked to everyone's detriment. To, to me, this is almost the story of what could have been. And Asia overall is kind of a band of what could have been. But nothing encapsulates it more than the second album and 1983 for this band. Yeah, and I know that there was some, there had already been tensions before they even put this record out. Right. I was trying to figure out how that worked because if you look at the first album, most of the songs were written by Wetton and Jeff Downs, right? And certainly the big hits. Yeah. So you've got One Step Closer that was Steve Howe and Without You, and he did Cutting It Fine. And that was about it. So there's some talk about how Howe was the, the one who thought that he provided the firepower to make that record what it was. So I was a little concerned. I was not concerned, but I was a little confused on that. Like, how did you think that this was all you? But who knows? So they're fighting and then they want to put this thing together. And I guess the, the record company was like, okay, so the hits were written by Downs and Wenton, right? Right. Let's have the record, the second one written by the two of them, just cut to the chase. We'll make them all hits. Like you said, you sold 10 million the first time. We'll sell 12 to 15. The okay, take it easy. It doesn't work like that. And you know that too. Come on. 
You should know that. Right? Yeah. I mean, in, in the history of time, have you ever had a 10 million seller that was followed up by another 10 million seller? I mean, maybe I if you're Led Zeppelin or something like that, <laughs> Floyd, but I mean, that's, that's not what these guys are really going for here, mm-hmm. but no, you know, so you're right. And, and so they said, yeah, the, the, the rivets that came off the line with only John Wetton and Jeff Downs working on them. Those were some really, really good rivets. The rivets the other guys worked on or contributed to, yeah, some of those are fine, but let's just make all the rivets, you know, mm. these golden ones. And it just it just doesn't work that way. And we know that Steve Howe is kind of an open channel. He can do a lot of amazing things with the guitar. And he's written hundreds and hundreds of songs over the years. He's he he's got He's played on something like 70 original albums. I mean, including Yes and Asia and mm-hmm. Steve Howe's Homebrews and, you know, his other little bands that he's been in over the years. So he can do that. He just wants to feel like he's contributing. And I think John Wetton, who had a bit of an alcohol problem, was feeling more empowered. Like, look, they want us to write these. That You know, Kalodner's come and said, John mm-hmm. and Jeff, write the songs. And I'm writing the songs. And Steve wanted more input on them. But I don't know if he wanted to change certain stuff. I don't know if he was having a hard time finding the, you know, it, it, that same kind of middle ground with Jeff as far as John's voice is high, the bass and the drums are low, and then there's that mid-range that mm-hmm. he and Jeff are kind of fighting to occupy. I don't know. It, it worked on the first one, and it was mixed very well. The wall of sound created by Mike Stone, who we've talked about a little bit recently here, right? He he did Journey's Frontiers, which also came out in 83. Mm-hmm. He did White Snake's 87 album, so which we reviewed with Sonny last year. So Mike knows what he's doing. He was the... He was the guy, the producer on the first record. So they really just said, you know what? We're going we're gonna to run it back. We are going to run it back for the second album. Same producer. They went to the studio in Quebec, which is French for the studio. The problem is they mm. went in the winter when it was like, mm. and it's, yeah. it's not right in the middle of Montreal. It's, it's kind of like on the outskirts. So it's like it's snowing, it's freezing. There's nothing to do. I think that was kind of a bummer. But they even set up the album pretty much the same way they set up Asia. Not dissimilar to when Heaven and Hell was big for Black Sabbath with Ronnie James Dio. Mob Rules was basically set up the exact same way. Like, you know, the, yeah. the, the runner comes out first. There's the epic one that's about third or fourth or whatever. It had the same number of songs, all that kind of stuff. So they they really did try to make Asia Part 2, and they did just call it Alpha. I don't know. I mean, what, overall, what are your thoughts? on? Well, before we do that, let's go back to... Mm-hmm. How do you remember this as a kid in 1983? Uh, I mean, I remember, I remember the uh, the "Don't Cry" because that was a big video. The rest of it, I don't really remember at all. I remember when they put out that "Then and Now" record. Right. That then the smile has left your eyes. Okay, I remember that. But I mean, as far as I think by 1983, unfortunately. I think MTV had kind of passed them over. I know they spent a lot of money at that point in time, 100000 I think, or to something to put that video together. It was a little, like it looked cool in 83. Yeah, I was right. watching it now. I'm like, oh, ooh, <laughs> these, these effects are not very special. Yeah, but it's a classic early 80s MTV video, right? <laughs> it, it, it was produced. They did put some money into it. And it tells a story, kind of. Uh, you know, maybe it doesn't have anything to do with the lyrics of the song, but it, it, it does tell the story. We'll, we'll get to that, but that's probably one of the triumphs of this album is that video. <laughs> what I like is the, uh, yeah, the production value 
And how did Wetton end up just, he's like, everybody else is gets to go out to the jungle or the pyramid. I'll just be at the bar. Right. I'm fine. Well, he is the singer, I guess. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like this woman is kind of single-handedly one by one killing off the other members of the band, but then she mm-hmm. goes home with Wetton. Now, right. maybe that's the old fashioned way to kill off a member of the band, but, <laughs> but she's doing it in the slow way, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, and I, I'm like you. I remember Don't Cry being a big hit. And I remember mm-hmm. I, I liked it, but as a guy, you couldn't. I mean, it's not like Hell's Bells, you know, Don't right. Cry. Like, you can't go around singing that, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, and Down Under was out this time, you know, Separate Ways was out by Journey, mm-hmm. you know. So it's like there's stuff that we like that is cool and hard, and all this is good music. It's like, yeah, I'm not going to sing that in front of my friends. I'm not going to sing Don't Cry, you know, because that's just right. not. Or cool, the, you know? the smile has left your eyes. Yeah, that's, you know, that's not me. So, <laughs> uh, you know, so Don't Cry was a huge, huge hit on the radio. And then I remember the artwork uh, yeah. on the cover, mm-hmm. the Roger Dean artwork. Of course, he's he's done a lot of Asia stuff. He did the first one. And with the dragon, the pearl, um, which I'm sitting right underneath right now, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact. But this one was even better in a lot of ways. It just, it had the pyramid. It had the Asia logo. It had the eyes on there also kind of had the otherworldly tower in the foreground of the pyramid it had the eagle or the you know the raptor whatever kind of flying assassin this thing is with the fish in the water some great fauna floor around i mean it's colorful mm-hmm. it's cool it's one of my very favorite roger dean works you can't really separate it from the cover though or from the asia bit you take the the asia thing off the pearl and the dragon picture and then you just got a cool dragon artwork whereas this you take the asia you take the eyes off it's still it's still very synonymous with the record to me mm-hmm. yeah and there's a lot going on there there's a lot more even though the i think that the dragon is cooler because that's the only thing on it it's more iconic this, yeah this there's more to look at on this one yeah and I think the uh, the pyramid would come back. I think in Astra, the pyramid's in the back again. So that's, that's kind right. of the theme they're going with. And it always, the, the Roger Dean art always adds something more to the record. Absolutely. Just like it does with Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like it might with like Uriah Heep or somebody like that. If you get one of the albums that he did, it's just, it's something to look forward to. It's like, what is yeah. he going to do with mm-hmm. the next one? You know, and I'm a big fan of Rogers. Obviously I have some of his artwork on the walls here. I've, some of his books have his autograph. That's that's a good way to repeat, right? That's a right. good way to say, all right, we're going to run it back. Great. Let's get the same guy to do the cover art. And he knocked it out of the park. I mean, that's it's probably the highlight. One of the real highlights of the whole record is... <laughs> Is the artwork, wouldn't you say? Well, you could you could put that up on the wall, even if you didn't listen to the record one time or care about it at all, and and enjoy this independently. But it's a nice way to tie them together, too. Uh, you know, for years, Iron Maiden used Derek Riggs right. to tie all the records together. I think that their Dean does a good job of doing that, also. And I think he he did most of them, if not all of them, through the years. Uh, maybe not all of them, but yeah, it's a nice way to tie all of your records together. Yeah, he didn't do he didn't do all the Asia stuff, and I think that they, you know, maybe couldn't afford him for a while there in the nineties. Uh, <laughs> they came back to him when they kind of reunited uh, in the two thousands. Mm-hmm. Okay, but again, I mean, this sold three million copies, you know, and it, it was platinum in the U.S. Not quadruple platinum. It went to number one. Uh, Asia went to number one in America. It went to number six. Alpha did on Billboard 200, and in the UK, which is you know their home country, it actually did better on the charts. 
it didn't sell quite as well, but I think the first mm. album only went to 11, whereas this one went to number five, you know, and, you know, it, it did well in Canada. So, I mean, most people would say three million worldwide with one million U.S. That's a win. That's great. But it's in the eyes of, well, but last year you did 10 million of the right. first one, yeah. you know, so. And Geffen just wanted more because at the time, Geffen had spent so much money signing people like John Lennon and Donna Summer and Elton John who weren't really producing hits anymore like when mm-hmm. they did have hits they they're like okay we gotta we gotta make this work <laughs> now it worked out fine for them later in the decade by the end of the nine 80s early 90s you know they had aerosmith and white snake and guns and roses and nirvana like it it turned around for geffen mm-hmm. but the early part of the 80s there wasn't a lot of success 82 was a very bad year overall for records sales like the record business was just down bad hmm. and, and asia was the number one selling album in america that year and everyone freaks out when i tell them that because it, just doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't seem to make sense you know it's like it's surrounded by like you know other years it was the wall pink floyd it was elton john's greatest hits it was thriller you know it was born in the usa but 82 there it is asia so geffen figured it would happen again let's run hmm. it back and it just didn't. And, and the sad thing is, too, they kind of missed out on a lot of touring stuff. We'll get into more of this tour later. But the first tour, they didn't they didn't have a huge set. They had to stretch some stuff out. They weren't going to play stuff from their old bands, like mm-hmm. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, or Yes, or the Buggles, or, or anything like that. But so they started in, like, theaters and doing small gigs. But because Heat of the Moment was such a huge success, they were the hottest ticket. Suddenly everyone wanted to go see them. They could have sold like 15,000 tickets, even though there's only like 2,500 in the venue or something like that. So then as the tour went on, they expanded and they played some bigger places, which is great. But because there was issues with this, issues with the mix, it took them a while to get it out. And they released, they started the tour before the album had come out, which is always mm. a little tricky. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think that, you know, suddenly it's so, it was like, oh, we can't play, we can fill 2,000. No, we can fill 10,000. Great, we can fill 15, 20. Next tour, we'll do it again. It's like, yeah, now there's only eight or 10,000 coming to see, yeah. you know. Uh, and so, again, it, what could have been for this band, it just seems like they were prisoners of the moment and yet they didn't make the most of it. Yeah, and it's tough too because when you've got, especially back then, it, everything was timed out so precisely and you're talking about the mix i know they it didn't seem like they were happy with it but the the release date was kind of set in stone yes so they couldn't they couldn't mess with it once it was and i remember that too you know you go to the record store and they'd have the stuff that was out but then there would be a like a chalkboard or something up over the register saying Coming here's the, here are the release dates yeah yep. so you get all excited ooh, ooh, yeah and once you once you had that swatted they had to have Every record company had to have the you know one or two that they would release, and you were up, and that was it. So the other problem too with doing these things and reading reviews are you know they were talking about things were rushed or they felt like they were rushed, and then when you listen to this record, you're like, yeah, I can kind of hear that. Mm -hmm. I can hear like maybe if they had had a little more time to get some get some more material put together and maybe refine it a little bit, it would have been different. But they had the record company on their backs saying this will happen right now and and that's sad when Mm -hmm. commerce dictates art but that's the way it goes sometimes yeah and and when geffen's having a hard time as a label and they've got something hot here 
And you are professionals. It's not like your kids who are, you know, 23 years old and, and suddenly like, oh, I had my whole life to write the first album. I've only got six months to write the next. Like you're right. You're grown up rock stars. You're in your 30s, except for maybe Jeff. But I mean, they're they're all grown up professionals. They can do this, you know. So, you know, it, it's not a horrible record. It's just it's to me, it's a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. And you can hear it in parts of the mix, too. I guess the first one, it just it sounded so great. And Mike Stone kind of had this wall of sound, not dissimilar to what he does with Journey, what he did with Frontiers. Mm-hmm. But the wall just, it seemed like it flattened out Carl and Steve. And, and Steve is not contributing quite as much on this one as he did on the first one, you can tell. I think Carl right. is good on here. I, I, actually, I think he's great. He's really stand out. But you can't always hear him. It, it's not forward. It's like the mix is different. So they asked for a remix which they got. It came back and I guess it was better. And the record company's like, that's good enough. It's got to go out. It's time. You know, when the band's like, no, no, it's still not right. Do it again. But yeah. they're like, nope, nope. And of course, Mike Stone says, I got blamed for all that. But he and Wet, yeah. I think, took a lot of heat for this record. Yeah. And, and it's tough when things don't go the way that you want. And then the fingers start pointing, you know, well, I told you we shouldn't have done this. Or if you'd have listened to me and we put in these other songs, we could have yep. done better. Yeah. That's. That's the tough part. And then if if relationships are already frayed, that's when they get really bad. Exactly. So I think Mike was having a hard time. He's trying to be a peacekeeper between Howe and Wetton. And I think and I think he liked it to hit the bottle a little bit like John did. I mean, he he only <laughs> lived to be about 50, 51 years old. He died in 2002. And I think it was related to his to his alcoholism. A fine producer who worked on some huge albums that we like, but Mm-hmm. And maybe that's and maybe he was taking wet inside. I don't know. It's it, they're so very English. They don't really come out and say exactly what was happening. <laughs> but it sounds like to me that John was parting a bit. Maybe not always reliable. Yet he was in charge, mm-hmm. and that rubs Steve the wrong way because he's pretty much a teetotaler. I mean, he hasn't had meat in more than fifty years. He doesn't take hard drugs. I don't. I don't know if he doesn't touch alcohol, but if he does, maybe he has like a glass of wine with dinner. He's not like a mm-hmm. like a partier, you know. And I see that all all the time. And I think it's very much why yes is the way it is now. Like he, if you're a hard partier, you're not going to be in yes, you know. If right, you know, so right. That's just the way he is, and that's okay. You'll get good work done if you're sober. But anyway, I, I want to let you know that I'm going to be referring to this book uh, a little bit along the way. You've seen these on track series. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Where you can get, I mean, they have it for lots of different bands. It's like every album, every song by a certain band. Mm-hmm. When I noticed a couple of years ago that this, uh, they had one for Asia. I'm like, well, I better get that. Cause they're not going to reprint that. Like <laughs> however many they have in the first run, when those are gone, they're not going to be making more of them. So written by someone named Peter Bradis, mm-hmm. who was actually a, a much bigger Asia fan than you and I are. And I'll, I'll tell you why at some point here, but he, he, you know, he's written about everything. I mean, going all the way to, to their reunion albums and even did some of the, uh, some of the offshoots, you know, and, and Archiva and like the power of three, which is like a side project with, with Carl Palmer, you know, just like a, a lot of okay. stuff. So neat little thing, but it, it can help tell the stories here. So if I would say in the book, that's the book referring to okay. Asia, gotcha. every album, every track, every album, every song on track. Hi, this is Carl Palmer, and you're listening to The Ugly American Werewolf. So, just like the first album, the lead single is the first song. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't cry. And just like the first album, when they had finished recording it all, the record company came back and said, hey, 
We don't hear a hit single. We need one more. <laughs> and that's when they came up with Heat of the Moment. Same exact thing on Don't Cry. Mm-hmm. Jeff and, and John put this one together. And it was a pretty big hit for them. I mean, you know, it, like you said, you remember hearing this on the radio. You remember seeing it on MTV. Right. Yeah. The, and the, the, only, the only problem with this one is... It's not where Heat of the Moment had that iconic guitar riff. Big there riff. really, yeah, there really isn't anything like that in, in this one. I mean, it, it chugs along. The structure of it is very easy to hear and very easy to remember. <laughs> you know, it gets it kind of gets earwormed into your head. So, and that's the hallmark of a of a hit single. My problem with this one is the it it really feels like especially the chorus was like thrown together at the last minute. You know, don't yeah. uh, just put words that rhyme together and we'll be fine. <laughs> Ship it out. Yeah, but I mean it's it's a it's if you're going to start the record off like you said, put it put it together the same way as the first one, lead single first, hook them in and then we'll go from there. Yeah, it's got some great hooks in it. Yeah. Steve is good. It's it's a little higher than he usually plays. Mm-hmm. Like I said, you know, you can, guys aren't going to go start and sing it. Don't cry. You know, it's not a yeah. <laughs> heat of the moment. Okay, yeah, uh-huh. I can sing that, but don't yeah. cry. It's like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> went to number 10 on the billboard charts it went to number one on mainstream rock charts went to 10 in canada only went to 33 in the uk however i think that's the first time it hit the top 40 in the uk because heat of the moment only went to like 46 or 48 or Mm. something like that okay back in the day so just another story of this was a big u.s success but in the uk i mean i think it went gold asia did and then this one went silver which is like 60,000 units, not a big deal, right? So big in U.S., big in Canada, big in Japan. But in the U.K., they just didn't really get Asia. And I I don't think that Geffen necessarily knew what they were doing over there. Hmm. Because I I was reading a story how when they're doing Alpha, releasing Alpha, they were switching gears on how they distribute in Europe. And that always, with a business angle like that changes for the big market like that, it can obviously screw up your chart performance. Yeah, that was back when they they didn't count them. They just counted the the ones that they shipped. They didn't, it wasn't like the, the, what was it, the sound scan that came out where it was like they could actually tell what had been bought. So yeah, you're right. If if they change distribution, then hey, I shipped you X number of copies, so that's what we've sold. And what's interesting is in the UK, True Colors was the B-side, which is on the second side of Alpha. Mm-hmm. Often called beta. See, A sides alpha, uh, B sides beta. Alrighty. But it was daylight, which was a uh, well. It's kind of a bonus track. Really good mm-hmm. song, and we'll get to it later. But it was on the cassette. It was not on the album. We can talk about that later. Look, it, the mix isn't great throughout the album, but Carl and Steve, you can hear them both on this one. I think the fact of the matter is they couldn't pull this off live very well. It, it wasn't perfect for Steve, and when they adjusted it. Huh. When they got back together in the 2000s to an acoustic bit that Steve could play on the mandolin. Okay. And then, you know, do John's voice and then maybe let Carl come in with brushes, do a little swing thing. I think it was executed a lot better. I, I like 
I like the single. I love the video. I got to be honest with you. I love the video. It is very of the time. It's basically the guys are four explorers, a la mm-hmm. Indiana Jones, right? Right. They're all kind of attacking this pyramid in a different way. Steve Howe, he's in the tent. He's making his charts. He's climbing along the cliff. He falls down and he walks right in. And then he kisses the, the girl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she burns him up in flames. Like, God, that's mm-hmm. me. Now, meanwhile, poor Jeff, he's out in the desert. You know, he's right. going through the desert, getting scorched. You know, saying, like, oh, I'm not going to make it. He walks in, boom, the lock comes down behind him. He sees the shadow of the woman when he walks in the pyramid. He's like, uh-oh, I better just scoot over here to the side. Then, boom, the clamps come on him. Ah, I can't get out. And then he's dead. And then Carl's fighting through the jungle with his machete. Mm-hmm. And then he gets in some quicksand. He's in trouble, you know. And then he lowers himself down. He know, lowers himself next to Jeff's carcass, who I guess had <laughs> been in there a long time. <laughs> then he, the woman comes to see him. He's like, ah, hey, pretty lady. And then she pushes him into, it looks like a pool of milk in our cold and I don't know. And I guess the story is he drowned in there. He turned into the stone. I don't know. But the whole time Wetton's in the bar singing the song and holding hands with the girl, you know? And at the end he walks out with her and the the other three guys are at the bar like playing cards or the table playing cards like ah, it must be (laughs) good to be the singer, you know? All right, all right, all right. Filmed at Twickenham, yeah, with a six-figure budget. Mm-hmm. But see, I like to see that stuff. I mean, that's what that was the genius of MTV. Not just showing them play their instruments. Anybody can do that. Right. Let's tell a story, you know, and maybe it doesn't have anything to do with the song, but it'll be fun, you know, and MTV will play the hell out of it. It's cool, you know, and for the most part it did. You know, and number well, one hit, mainstream rock. That's that's always a big deal. Yeah, and the other thing was too going back and looking at it, it it seemed like they were all kind of in on it, you know, as far as being excited to do this, which was interesting because they were older. You know, this right. wasn't Duran Duran. This wasn't somebody coming out that was like, oh, we have to make this video. They're like, yeah, okay, video. But yeah, let's have a good time. Let's fool around and and have a costume changes and, you know, sets that they built. So it was fun to see. Even though the the acting part of it was a little shaky by the uh, well, musicians, you know, I mean, what did Carl call it when we interviewed him on show eighty? I said, I think he said it was a bit monkeys. The video, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit mad that we're doing this, but well, the other thing that changed in a big way in the early eighties, it wasn't just radio was changing, but suddenly, at least in the United States, there's this thing called MTV, right? And now Gavin is investing in making your videos, getting godly and cream to come in and and make those first videos. The, the don't cry video from alpha is epic. It it cost, you know, six figures back in the day. What did you feel about that? I mean, you'd made concert films with ELP, but they'd never done these videos where you actually kind of had to act or play to the camera. What what was your feeling? They did though, didn't they? Don't cry. We're like in the desert, chopping my way through some jungle, you know? Yeah. It was a bit, it was a bit monkeys, but you know, we did it. Look, at the time, that was the media. That was the force you had to use to get your stuff played. And you had to have a video that meant something. They weren't, you know, most of Godly and Cream stuff I thought was excellent. Yes. Uh, only time will tell, heat of the moment. Don't cry, you know, maybe look, Indiana Jones, it was like. <laughs> yes. We didn't yes. really need that. But, um, yeah, you know, uh, I enjoyed working with them. They were really um, professional. They knew exactly what they wanted. And you couldn't really um, set them off the, the track. You know, they had a clear vision. And they were usually right every time, I have to say. And uh, Geffen, 
he just wanted to use them and they were English guys. So we got on well. So the whole thing just clicked. And getting to talk to him about that, it was a real thrill for me last mm-hmm. year, man. I know it was absolutely, for you too, but I mean, yeah. it's like, this is so cool. We can talk to Carl about that video that, that we love so much. Although if you're talking about, if you want to talk about Carl Palmer here for a minute, I like what he does at the beginning where he's just, he just hits the symbols on the, on the way in. It really sounds on this record. Like he could, and I know we talked about this, like he, he was cool with whatever you need him to do, he'll play. But on this record, he probably could have played it while reading something else or watching the TV or something. He He's really holding himself back on this, fitting in where he needs to. But you can if you let him go, th- there would be a lot more. Yeah. No, you can hear the flurries in there. You can hear the yeah. power. Mm-hmm. And, and he's never lost it. He's always been a solid drummer. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know why Steve isn't as prevalent on this, but why Carl isn't better in the mix or doesn't have more on here. It's a little baffling to me. Well, I think. I think the whole thing with this one is is this was probably the record company saying, hey, we love the first record. You guys did great. But if you could make it even more radio friendly, that's where it really needs to be. So I think this one, they took a lot of the edge off and they kind of made it sound more like kind of everything else. Like to me, I've got a note here. Like it, if when you listen to this, it almost sounds like another band trying to be Asia. Like it's just, it's just, they just don't, it's like, yeah, you, you kind of had it, but you don't have it all the way. Who knows? And again, who knows if they had more time, if they were more friendly with each other at this period of time, could it have been a different record? Good notes. And obviously we'll, we'll never know. Right. But go to the second song, which is the second single, The Smile Has Left Your Eyes. Just like mm-hmm. Only Time Will Tell was the second song and the second single off Asia, just following the Asia script here. Mm-hmm. And this is the only song on the album that was only penned by John Wetton. Everything's Wetton Downs. Mm-hmm. But this one is a song written by Wetton about Jeff Downs because he had gone through a heavy breakup, I guess, the year before. And Wetton's uh, okay. been through that before. He's seen that before. And so he's writing this, I guess for jeff here's the interesting note though from this book dude we have now arrived at my favorite song written by anyone now that is a statement my friend Hmm. okay (laughs) and i mean you know so no beatles songs no (laughs) songs you know no bob dylan nothing it's like this is his favorite song i mean and if he loves it god bless him for it it's a little cheesy for me. So was this, we were talking about how the the first one was written kind of at the end and thrown in. Was this the original first single? Well, maybe. I mean, it, it might have been if, if there was okay. not going to be a Don't Cry. Right. This is probably teed up to go, yeah. Yeah. It, the one thing that I really stood out for me on this one is how underrated Wetton is in the lead singer. Like, if you if you Google, you know, greatest lead singers in rock, you're not going to get John Wetton right off the bat. That's right. However, I think he is criminally underrated. And when you hear him kind of at the beginning of this with his voice alone, you're like, wow, yeah, that dude can really sing. So you're standing hand in hand But now you come to me The solitary man And I know what it is That made us live such ordinary lives Where to go to the sea No Really amazing, if you ask mm-hmm. me. I mean, a powerful, rich, smooth. He can go high, he can go low, mm-hmm. he can sustain it, you know. Now, Mike Stone does a lot of looping here, and it's it's to to 
thicken up his voice, I'm pretty sure it's Wetton backing John Wetton, mm-hmm. which again is hard to pull off live. But still, uh, it, it, he sounds great. Now, um, Steve is doesn't do much on here, and you can't really hear Steve Howe on here. The video is an odd one. It was directed by Brian Grant, who directed the first one, who directed the, the Indiana Jones Don't Cry video. Mm. This is like there's a film. It's like a French film where daddy's standing at the at the train station and mommy and the daughter are walking off to get on the train and the daughter's upset because obviously her parents are breaking whatever. And they even had like the titles and their, you know, their names of the actors and stuff like that. And then they are, there's the band <laughs> in the studio, like playing to the soundtrack of this little film. So that's mm-hmm. a little odd, you know, cause there's, it's not a real film or anything, you know? So, and I had never really seen it before I was growing up. I never saw that on TV back in the day. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember that one at all. Whether it was not played in heavy rotation or if it wasn't even included, I mean, I don't remember that one. Oh, and, and I don't think it was a real big hit on the radio either. I mean, I think mm-hmm. it may have gotten, it may have charted, but that doesn't mean a whole lot. But it's it's a it's a John song. I mean, it's it's his song. He wrote it. Just him on the piano, and then you could add other stuff in there. I think, and Steve just didn't add much in there, to be quite <laughs> honest with you. Um, but yeah, I mean, look. Rick uh, Wetton writes a lot. They're very personal. There's a lot of breakup songs, but he writes about the eyes a lot, right? Smile has mm. left your eyes, eye to eye, and open your eyes are all on. Right. Not, not to mention, don't cry. You cry with your eyes. True colors, you know, it's something visual you see with your eyes. Midnight sun. So it, it just seems like it all comes back to the windows to your soul. That's what Wetton sees because you can tell if someone's happy or pissed off or in love or out of love just by looking at their eyes. I don't have to say. Anything. Mm-hmm. So I wonder did did uh, Dean incorporate that into this? into the cover and then into the Asia logo from then on. I think so. I think okay. that was the that was yeah. the thing. Yeah. All right. So that's a short one. Just just over three minutes. The third one, never in a million years. Mm-hmm. What do you think mm-hmm. of this one? It's a, it's it's one of the it's one of those ones where if you'd never heard it before and you play it and you say, What year was this written? And you would say, This is about what, 82, 83? Yes. Yep. It sounds really 80 generic uh, 80s generic. It mean, it could have been a single. I mean, it kind of sounds like that's what they were going for. I right. don't think it was ever released like that. It's a little, it's just a little, it's just generic. Anybody could have done this one. Yeah, it's soft and sappy. Yeah. Uh, the chorus is a little bit cheesy with the keys in there. Again, mm-hmm. John sounds great. His voice is rich. Yes. Jeff is creating some nice sounds there. But it, that's bad. If you're if you're Steve or Carl, even though it, it starts as a bit of a march with Carl yeah. at the beginning, mm-hmm. if you're Steve and Carl, like, am I even on this track? You know, I can't even hear myself on this. Yeah, and I wonder too, 
you know, going back to the, you're mad about the mix. Was there more? And then you hear the quote unquote end product and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, yeah, exactly. Where am I on this thing? Well, and so apparently there was supposed to be more a Steve Howe okay. on here. He says, you know, he, I was fighting not to be edited out quite a bit. Hmm. And on Never in a Million Years, where there was this clangy and weirdo guitar intro. And you can hear a little wah-wah uh, from Steve in some of this thing. Okay, uh, And then the rest of the band would join in. And before I knew it, it was hacked off. This wasn't so much the band, I've got to say. It wasn't the band or particularly Mike Stone, but it, uh, we were being affected by the record company mm. and the person there, which I assume is Kalander. So okay. that's really hands-on. That's real meddling, if you ask me. It was like, Steve's got this cool intro, uh, but you know what? Let's just take that off there and then we'll leave it you know, as this Jeff John thing. So, I mean, that's... Uh, I would like to hear. I would like to hear what what Steve yes. did. To be honest with you, well, and and that's the part that I don't get is that you know the Wetton was talking about the first record and, and people saying we don't hear a single. You know, this doesn't sound like what's on the on the radio, and yet it was a huge hit. So why would you mess with it on this one? You know, the guitar riffs were big on the first record. Why I I don't understand why you would you kind of water it down this time. Well, and they obviously miss Steve Howe. His signatures are always his own. You can always I can always tell whether it's mm -hmm. just song, Asia song, whatever. I'm like, yep, this is one with Steve Howe because I can hear his guitar. Yeah. and you know they eventually knew they needed him because John left Asia not too long after Alpha. Basically, left him in the middle of the Alpha tour before Asia mm -hmm. and Asia live on MTV, which we'll get to. But when he came back in 1984 then Steve Howe had to go because the two of them couldn't coexist. Mm -hmm. So they picked up Mandy Meyer, who I always call Mandy Moore. <laughs> but his name was Armand Meyer, I guess. And he did work with Crocus, I suppose, whoever they are, Swiss band. And he was in Asia for Astra, but it wasn't mm -hmm. going great because Kalodner came back to Steve Howe and said, man, I'll give you 75000 to come back and, and lay down some tracks and do the guitar, <laughs> make it sound like Asia again. He's like, nah, just, you know take off which is a big chunk of change i mean it's over two hundred thousand dollars today but mm -hmm. uh, still it was part of the magic the right. four of them together all taking their parts and not stretching this out into big prog you know 10 12 minute pieces as they were wont to do in their older bands like this is gonna be three and a half four four and a half minute songs so everyone's right. gonna have their part right and then you take out a key part you know, the only guy to be named like guitarist of the year five years in a row, Guitar Player Magazine or something like that, Steve Howe. Yeah, we don't need him. That doesn't make sense to me. But you were saying, too, it's not proggy, but on the first record, they did have elements that were prog-esque yeah. that they incorporated that they've kind of now filtered out on this one. Seems to be, yeah. Yeah. Kind of too bad. All right. Fourth song, In My Own Time, parentheses, I'll Do What I Want. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. It's, it's just my own time, not in Correct. my own time. Sorry. I always oh, like this. I like I the sentiment. Exactly. You know? <laughs> and I know he's singing it to a girl he broke up with. It's like, I'll do what I want to anyway, kind of thing. <laughs> but it sounded like something I would say to my mom. And I think yeah. she eventually realized, she told me, do what you want to do, because you're going to do it anyway. So just, <laughs> and I'm like, that's right. I'll do what I want to anyway. I, I like it, though. It, it, you get acoustic from Steve in the beginning. Right. And then you were talking about, you were just talking about the Steve Howe signature. You know, you can tell when he's playing. This is the Steve Howe acoustic signature.
absolutely. Mm -hmm. John's voice is wonderful on here. Yeah. Um, this is definitely better than the last track and maybe better than the last couple, I would say. It's still mostly John and Jeff on here, but there is some space for, for Steve and Carl. And mm -hmm. it's solid. They do a, a good job. And it's it's uplifting to me. It's like yeah. it's positive, you know, and the chords are major, so it's it's upbeat. So I, I don't know. I mean Steve Flurry's around at the end which is cool. It could have been maybe higher in the mix because then Jeff's interplay with Steve is kind of the way this track fades out. I don't love the tracks fade out and a bunch of tracks seem to fade out on this <laughs> one. But I think that was, that was of the time though. That was how songs kind of ended. There are, there is some, there is some horn part at the end. I think that's probably downs on the keyboard. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's got 42 of them back there. He can, that's right. I'm sure he can find one that sounds like horns. Now he, he set the Guinness World Record for most keyboards used on stage, something like 28 or 29 or something like that. And he told us on episode 79, yep, had two of everything, right? Two mugs, <laughs> two, two this, two that. Had them on opposite sides because he had to run. The stage was amazing on the Alpha Tour, but it was really to showcase Jeff. Also was not a mean feat. Was, was was not easy to do, Jeff. Was you covering... Was it 28 keyboards? You're in the Guinness Book of World Records. The stage is unbelievable, right? You're on a riser above Carl with all those keyboards and about four different microphones because you do most of the backing vocals and you have to cover all these spots. I mean, yeah. you, you had to have that mapped out pretty well. I was pretty fit in those days. I was running around on that riser, yeah. I still think I'm not too bad at the moment, but uh, certainly um, I was, uh, you know, it was, it was more... I wouldn't say it was more of a theatrical thing to be able to see all that huge bags of keyboards, but I think that stage with a big A-frame was um, was a spectacular stage, and so I think it it was more to do with the you know the presentation. Uh, although I did actually play all those keyboards, you know they went they went there just for show, right? So um, plus the guitar, of course, and the guitars. I had two guitars and stuff, yeah, all sorts of things. So two Hammond organs, two of everything, you know, two mini mugs. Two fair lights. Uh, it was a great, uh, it was a great experience. And the other reason you, you you fade out is because it's something you could jam out on live. You could let mm -hmm. it go longer, and it could evolve into maybe a solo for somebody. Because every guy got their own kind of solo time on stage, and so you know that could be used for that purpose. I don't know, but I I think it's it's at least going back in the right direction. Because after smiles left your eyes, which is kind of weak, never in a million years, which is kind of generic. At least it's like, okay, now we're getting back to doing something that's more right. Asia. Mm -hmm. Now, to wind up the first side, song number five, The Heat Goes On, I've been back and forth on this over the years. Okay. I mean, sometimes I'm happy about it. Sometimes I think it's hateful that they <laughs> followed up heat of the moment, but the heat goes on. Mm -hmm. uh, but but tell me your take on it before I get into my issues. Well, but the first thing that I have, and, and it, we probably have the same problem on this, I don't like it when you go back to the well. I think Metallica at some point in time had the Unforgiven two. Like, yeah. stop it, stop it. You had, and this this song does. I mean, if you listen to the song, it doesn't really have anything to do with the first one. So whatever that they don't use any of the same components of it. True. But it's a callback, and I th I think it's kind of cheesy, especially when that was your big hit. I know. Um, to to kind of try and tie it together so that was always my thing it's like you don't mm -hmm. have a song called heat of the moment that followed up with the heat goes on but to <laughs> your point if don't cry doesn't get written would this have been the lead single because yeah, I, would maybe. Lead, I would lead with this before i would lead with the smile has left your eyes you, yeah you gotta have an upbeat rocking song mm -hmm. and so my guess is it was 
and and that's might be what the you know record companies like okay we like the idea of the of a repeat of heat of the moment but is it quite yeah, i don't know Yeah, so then when you write Don't Cry, are you like, okay, well, then just push this one down to the fifth spot? Maybe. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm not sure. I, you know, obviously, I'm not Kalander. I don't know what happened there. But So it starts off with some kind of what I call serious piano at the beginning. Not mm-hmm. like tons of it, but like weighty piano. And then Hal comes in hammering, you know, pulling yeah. off. The mix is better. The chorus is definitely wetting with wetting, but it's big and uplifting. But see, the big power chords on here... I like it harkens back okay. a little bit and it's better than some of the more symphonic, really keyboard driven stuff. It's not that I don't like what Jeff does. It's just, this has a little bit more Steve on it. And I think that fans really like this one. And ever since they released this, I don't know if they've done a show without playing heat goes on. It, it's, it's pretty big staple of their show. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why do fans want more of this? Versus the symphonic stuff. I'm like, because you can hear Steve out. You can hear him on it, you know? So. And I've got a I've got a note here that, that there's a solo, a little bit of a solo from Downs at the end. And that kind of that kind of brings it back to the Asia world where maybe some of the other songs, or maybe some of the other parts of the song sound very 80s, sound kind of generic. That that ties it back. Like you okay, I know that's Jeff Downs back there. Right. Yeah. And uh also though, I mean because like we say, everybody gets their own kind of time on stage. And eventually, I think they would let Carl break in and do his drum solo okay. during this song. For whatever reason, it's just a good time to do it. But anyway, I don't know. Right now, on its own, I don't like it that okay. much. I, I, it's mostly I don't like the principle of it, right? <laughs> but in the context of the record, it actually plays a pretty important role as far as I'm concerned with a little bit of power chords mm-hmm. and, and a little bit more of the first album sound and you can hear steve in it which you can't on every song on here so and here's the thing uh, you know i always go in if i'm going to see them I'm like i don't really want to see he goes on and they play it i'm like yeah this is you know this is pretty good <laughs> hi this is jeff downs you're listening to the ugly american werewolf Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. But that's side one, or the alpha side of alpha, Mm -hmm. which brings us to the beta side 
of Alpha. And we start off with Eye to Eye. I don't know, there's lots of cool Jeff stuff in this, especially during the chorus. But I, I mean, John, I feel like is really straining. I don't know if straining is the right word. You can tell that this is difficult to sing because he gets up real high right before mm-hmm. the chorus. Ah, yeah. You know, I, I can't, I, I'm not even going to try that. But definitely, yeah, definitely out of his comfort zone that he does most of the, <laughs> most of the range that he sings in. This is on the higher end of it. This is the first track with a guitar lick at the beginning. It's, it's not super out there, not like heat of the moment, but it's, you know, yeah. at least it's a little change of pace. The, to me, this, the synth bridge in the middle is kind of weird. I'm like, is this, did you put two songs together? It's kind of a odd breakout there. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, the bridge and the solo is the only time you really hear Steve to me, yeah. and then it, it fades out, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of like the, the, there's a bridge and solo, and then it kind of goes away because this is a fairly short track. It's three mm-hmm. minutes and thirteen seconds, or something like that. Uh, so it's it's not a real long one. It's like they're like, all right, let's just get this over with, kind of thing. But if you listen to the lyrics, you never seem to answer the questions. You know, I put to you. Can you give me reasons why I made this sacrifice? When you thought you walked on water, you were skating on thin ice. Mm-hmm. We always think it's about a girl, and most of these are, but that sounds more like, Steve, why are you being a jerk in the studio? <laughs> and I'm in charge here. I'm making the sacrifice. I'm doing all this work. And you think you're walking on water, but you're skating on thin ice. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what it sounds like to me. Well, it's funny how those two relationships can be so the same. You know, it, because I mean, you figure if you spend that much time with another person, it, it's they're going to have a lot of similarities. I mean, you spend day after day, especially this one. You're in Quebec. It's four degrees outside. There's nothing else to do. It's not like you're in, you know, the, you're not in Compass Point in the Bahamas or right. Montserrat. Or or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're like, oh, cool, another day. What's freezing? So yeah, you're stuck in this box with these people, and yeah, they're going to start to rub each other the wrong way, and. To your point, yeah, I'm the one doing all the heavy lifting. Why can't you just shut up and play what right. you're supposed to? Why, why are you always bitching at me? You know, correct. So that's that's the way the cookie crumbles sometimes too. It's like I I kind of get the whole let's get out of the city because if you're in London, then there's a lot of distractions. Mm-hmm. Or if you're in LA, there's a lot of distractions. But yeah, I mean February through April in Nowheresville, Quebec, it's like ugh, <laughs> that doesn't sound like fun to me. I mean, do that in the summer, sure, yeah, that'd be amazing. Yep. Be outside and enjoy life but well that's no that's just silly just silly i don't know overall do you like it it's it's an interesting let me see what else did i say it it is a little bit it's kind of a nice change of pace and and you're right when you listen to it this one's a little deeper than some of the other ones as far as the meaning goes so it's not it's not a bad way to start off the the second side of this record i agree with you there it's not fantastic but it's it's a solid and it fits obviously with everything else yeah the next one, Last to Know, this is another whiny, you know, <laughs> breakup song. Very synth out to start with the piano. I mean, again, Wetton sounds great. Mm-hmm. He belts out the chorus. He's really good. But the synth the synth stuff just, just dates it hard, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, I've got, I've got, this could be any 80s band. 
on here. It's it, kind of generic, yeah. It, it seems like they were going for a much more of-the-time generic sound, although at the end, the keyboards sound great, and I think Carl does a nice... He de- he he's playing he's playing a little more rocking at the end of this tune. At the end, he does. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know the, there's not much Steve on here except for the bridge, mm-hmm. which he shares with Jeff. It's not really a yeah. solo. It's it's not a Steve solo. He and Jeff are kind of noodling together, so it's the, it's different. There really isn't any Steve solo on this one. Again, if if something that you would call a solo is just kind of him, like you said, just noodling a little bit. There is yeah. no there is nothing like that here. There's upbeat major chords through the chorus, mm-hmm. so it's 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 a lament, it's a whine, it's a little whiny if you ask me. I was the last to know. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but it's upbeat through that until they get to the title line. But I was just the last. Yes. Then it's then then it's a bummer again. I think you know again, and it's it goes back to you're not gonna be singing this one walking around. No, no exactly. No way. Yeah, um, <laughs> and they played it a little bit on '83. Mm-hmm. here and there but i think it was dropped later the eighth song or the third song on the second side true colors mm-hmm. this was the b-side to don't cry in the uk okay i don't really like this one this to me is cheesy 80s this to me could be a lot of different people okay it's heavier it's it's right it's so that's a step in the right direction and there's some flourishes from Steve but I just mm-hmm. I don't I've never liked this one that much and and I I would honestly considering there's a couple of B-sides on here that I like better I might leave this one off in favor of them. I feel like I've especially when you get to the uh, chorus I feel like I've heard this song before True Colors Oh, kind of like Soul Survivor. It's the same exact delivery there. I'm <laughs> like that's the same. You use that all over again. On Pretty this much. one. Yeah, yeah. Cindy Lauper had a very different True Colors, totally different song. But if you think of song from the 80s, True Colors, you're going to think of that. You're not going right. to think of this. Correct. Yeah. And again, that, that's, that synth intro, that could have been probably seven or eight other people at this point in time. It just, it, it lacks the, it lacks the, any kind of Asia signature on this song. And the, the author here agrees with me. Although this is a pretty good song, especially the bridge. This might have been better dropped from the album and used as one of the mostly superior B-sides that were left off. With you there, hmm. Peter. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into those shortly here. Now, usually when you've had a couple of weak ones, and Last to Know wasn't necessarily weak. It's just it's not a guy's rocking, cool, fun song. Mm-hmm. I think True Colors is a little weak, although it had a little bit of a riff in it. You figure, well, okay, well, they're, they're winding down the album, and the last couple are not going to be very good. However... 
they are pretty darn good if you ask me. And Midnight Sun, which is the ninth song or the fourth on the second side, I think it's pretty cool. I, you know, it, it's, it builds from the beginning and everybody is getting to contribute on this. You can kind of hear everybody doing their thing a little bit better. I feel like the mix is, is better and it's an uplifting one to me. Mm, and I'm glad they put this one ninth and not tenth because it's it's a good change of pace be- after True Colors mm-hmm. and between Open Your Eyes. call there yeah what's interesting about this one is they had played this on the asia tour this is one that they had kind of already worked out okay and had tried live and i think they changed it up a little bit for the record here but you know it, it's a nice song there's not much steve on it until the solo mm-hmm. and it's not one that i sing along to it's midnight <laughs> so it's not it's not a pump your fist in the air it's and the good Guiding light. It's it's kind of a softer song, mm-hmm. but but the music to me is great, and the final note for Wetton is very strong. He sings across the sky. It's like you know what they're showing off here. Mm-hmm. But again, this one is maybe a six or a seven. It's not like these crank this up to ten or eleven. I'm not talking about the volume. I'm talking about just what they could all do with it. I feel like everyone's holding back a little bit on this one. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. And it's, yeah, it's, again, it's not bad. It's just not, uh, it, it could have been more. You could have put more stuff into it. I think, I think Palmer, you can hear him during the solo, just kind of bashing it on the, on the kit back there. Yeah. It's like you said, if, if it was a, it's kind of, we're tired today. So we're just going to do this <laughs> half power. Kind of, you know, uh, but I, I liked it. And yeah, you can hear it on boots and some of the um, stuff that they've released. You can hear them do Midnight Sun live in 82 which is which is cool and they needed it right i mean they they only had 10 songs (laughs) plus ride easy Mm. uh, or including ride easy i should say you know they they needed the material and and so that to me it's cool that they included it now they wrap up the record at least the album the lp and the cd Mm -hmm. with open your eyes again another song and it's an upbeat song, and it's a great way to end the records. A lot of them are throwaways, or, or it's something mm-hmm. mellow. It's kind of like we'll say goodbye on this one. This one is kind of epic, and it's easily the longest song on the record. It's like six and a half minutes long. And, and my thought on this one is that if you if there was any song that could have been on the first record, it was this one. It, it this just sounded more like the original sound that they were going for. And I mean, I like it. I'm glad they put it at the end instead of kind of burying it in the middle. I like the way that he's kind of like downs noodles a little bit on the bridge. Uh, and, and I like the part where Wetton sings alone too.
Yeah, I think everyone does very well on this one. It's a, and it's a little bit of a play out, like uh, just like here comes the feeling was an upbeat mm-hmm. way to end the Asia record. Right. Here's an upbeat play out to end the Alpha record. So again, the playbook is the same. The chorus is very classic Asia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's it's cool because it, it, it's basically like a three minute song or whatever, and it kind of stops, slows down. Jeff kind of uses the vocoder to to speak through a little bit there, open your Mm -hmm. eyes and then it builds back up. And Steve definitely plays a role there, but Carl's drums are, you know, the one kind of really building back up. This is John's song. I want to give Greg Lake some credit. Some of the songs when he was in the band, he didn't sing very well. I thought he did this one pretty well, but this is John, this is John's song. I mean, this is, this is for him to sing. There's no doubt about it. And then, yeah, there's a big fade out where you get to hear some Steve Howe, I guess, you know, but (laughs) It just seems like a waste you've got Steve Howe and you leave right. him on the shelf I'm to me. Sure that he mentioned that more than one time when they were mixing this record. Hey, don't don't put me on the bench. Get me in there and let me play my stuff. But you know this is about a girl, probably a model. Uh, and some of the lyrics are a little bit nasty, you know, towards her when it's like, you spent your days trying something new. You looked at magazine girls wishing they were you. Did you see in photographs an angel that once was you? Does she tell you stories that are true? Kind of like, yeah, open your eyes. It's kind of like, yeah, I, I remember you. You're back and you're with somebody else now. And yeah, I don't know about you anymore. He, he can be a little nasty, I feel like, John. Well, he he had a couple of bad breakups in his time, right? Apparently. Not, yeah, not the, not the easiest life to have. Although uh, when I was looking at stuff for this, there there was a um, a documentary about I think it was 2012 when they had put the 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 third the three X record together. Oh yeah, thirty yeah mm-hmm. thirty, and and he sounded really good, really good on that, really good on the live stuff that they had that they had put out. And then I saw something from him. It was like maybe 98 or 99 when he mm-hmm. was doing solo stuff, and he was in rough shape even on stage so i'm really glad that he got himself together and they could have they got back i think they were back together for what seven or eight years maybe the original band yeah yeah i mean you know until he died and they did four Mm -hmm. albums three three with steve howe who eventually said i'm not doing yes and asia anymore i'm I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm bobbing out here but he never lost his voice and you listen to those albums once in a while you'll hear some of that kind of original asia magic Mm-hmm. Not all the time, but once in a while you might get a face on the bridge or something that really kind of seems to get all four of them. But John's voice was still amazing. It was still right. wonderful. And all the damage he did to his body, it really did not affect his voice. And Carl Palmer said so much on our show. It's like, yeah, he was he was in rough shape, practically sleeping on benches for a while there. Oof. But yeah. he, he did get himself back together, and he never lost his voice. And I mm. think that 2006 tour, ahead of them making a new record, because I don't think they get a record contract, but so like we'll go out as like 25th anniversary of Original Asia. Mm. We'll do some tours, and we'll get some momentum, and that'll earn us a record contract, which they did, you know, and I'm, I'm really glad uh, that they came back, even though it wasn't really my kind of music anymore, even though... <laughs> You know, it it wasn't the same magic. I'm just glad that they kind of got a second chance. Yeah, absolutely. And especially when, you know, we'll go into this, I'm sure, in a minute, 
the uh, the big Asia and Asia tour kind of shot itself in the foot because Wet was not a part of it. Right. We need to get to that, but we got to talk about a couple other songs. First. Okay. So that's that. That's the original album, ten songs on LP and CD. Although CDs were not very popular at that point, they were still incredibly expensive, and nobody had yeah. a CD player that I knew of in 1983. Mm-hmm. But they had a bonus track on the cassette. Now you listen to John tell a story about it in the 2000s. He's like, we were one of the most bootleg bands out there. And the Asia album was allegedly, you know, there were two or three million like TDK or Maxell tapes where people had taped it. Uh, And I'm like, well, I, you know, A, I don't know how you prove that. B, you know, yeah, a lot of people will collect tapes or records of a band that they like, but there was only one Asia album. And like, just because you liked Asia, did that mean you had a bunch of Yes albums? No. Did that mean you had... UK albums or family? No, you know, or ELP? Not necessarily. So I mm-hmm. feel like a lot of people, if a friend got it, it's like, oh yeah, I'd like to have that too, sure. But the fact of the matter is, they did that on the first album. Talk about running it back. Ride Easy, which was the B-side to Heat of the Moment, was the bonus cassette track on Asia. So that sounds like a little after the fact, changing the story, a little Monday morning quarterbacking <laughs> story of why they really did it. But, you know, they like we had to give somebody some incentive to buy it on cassette instead of just getting their buddy to buy it and then making a cassette of their own, mm-hmm. I guess. But the fact of the matter is Daylight is a great song. And mm-hmm. it's a lot more clear. It's mixed better than a lot most of this record. And it's great. And when they did that reunion tour, they opened with this, much to the delight of their fans, you know. And it did... I think they did play it on the Alpha Tour, too. But because, you know, you usually you release a song, you know, a little bit before, uh, like the lead single is released a little bit before the record is released, maybe a couple weeks, maybe a month, something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. but because this was out before and people were anxious, okay, where's the rest of the record? I think Daylight got a little bit of play as a B-side on okay. Uh, you know, it's like as far as on-air radio play, it did okay, even though I'd never heard it on the radio before. And I, I didn't know it until the heady days of Napster. I'm like, what's this daylight <laughs> song from? It is interesting that you would have had this one put together so differently than the rest of them. I mean, th- this kind of harkens back more to the first first record than anything on Alpha, and it it is. I'm glad that they I'm glad that they included it, and it's it's good to hear it. I just don't know why they just decided to scrap it. Not well, not scrap it, but make it a B side and not an album cut. Right, I know because I I could have traded Last to Know uh-huh. uh, for this. Uh... I could have traded two colors for this, you know, and it's wetting down. So it's not like, well, Steve's on that. So that's not right. Yeah. But, you know, Kalodner decides, I guess, and, and thought it'd be a good B side. And it's awfully good for a B side as far as I'm Mm -hmm. concerned. But the next song lying to yourself, Mm -hmm. this is one of the best songs Asia's ever done to me. And and yet here it is lying in B side status. I, I know. I know. Was it the B side to, uh, the smile has left your eyes, maybe. I think so, yeah. Or, or maybe it wasn't even used. 
And yes, Steve wrote this with John. I, I, I has killer guitar work on it to me. It's it's so much better than most of this album. And the fact that it was, you know, well, I mean, of the 12 songs we've mentioned, this is the only one that wasn't on the cassette. It, it really doesn't make any sense to me. It, it, it honest to God does not. Now, I, I guess it was a bit of a, there was a little bit of controversy. One was, I think it was originally about the plight of Native Americans. Oh, okay. And then yeah. Kalander came and was like, all right, you gotta, you gotta change that. How? I mean, we, we can't be singing about that. That's not going to get on the radio and we don't want to, you know, put anybody on edge or anything like that mm-hmm. is a demo that had been around since 81. I think it's a great track. There's another thing. Peter says that the drum mix for, for Carl is a lot better than it is on the album. Is it because it's Steve wrote it? I don't know. This, this should have been on there. Yeah. Yeah. I think this definitely could have replaced one or two songs, especially on the B side. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe it goes back to, like they said, the hits were written by Wet and Downs. So if it's not wet, if it's anybody else, I don't really want to mess with it. I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll work on it. We'll put it on a B side, but I don't want this on the record unless it's those two. I don't know. So that's too bad. But I mean, you can get it on Heat of the Moment, which I think is Age of the Geffen Years. They basically have everything from the first two albums, plus all the B-sides. And, okay. And then, yeah. And then I maybe Astro's on there. I can't remember. They've had a lot of different re-releases over the years, and best ofs and things like that. <laughs> but it's it's on there. Also, Steve Howe has a, a best of, two best of anthologies, one from his solo stuff, one from the many bands that he was in, and, and it's included on there. But whether it was because of that problem with the lyrics was it whether it was because it was Steve Howe and we're not putting Howe songs on the record. I don't know. Seems like a wasted opportunity to me. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but I'm glad that they didn't include it as a B side and on a couple of those compilations. So you do get to hear it. Now, something I had no idea about before I read this book and then going back and doing research for this, there's a song written and recorded during this time by Wetton and Downs called Jody, J O D I E. Okay. And it's, it's still unreleased, but it's from the sessions. And I guess Jeff said this is a song that was written by myself and John. It was never really finished. I mean, it was vocalized, but it didn't get all the attention that everything else did. And I think Steve did like a rhythm track, but he didn't really ever get into it and give any signature Steve Howe stuff on it. So, I mean, I think I think the, the alpha demos were leaked online. Mm. And so people have heard it. I've not heard it. So if anyone can send us a link or something where we can hear that, I, I would love to hear it. What's interesting is... It was reworked into Alibis, which was on their 2008 reunion album, Phoenix. Okay. Um, so, and I've heard that song, obviously. So I, I would love to hear how it was originally, but that's, it's, it's always interesting when there's something there and it's just not quite finished. So you can't even really release it as a B-side, but that's the thing. Bands do that stuff all the time and then they'll come back to it on the next album or whatever. But yeah. 
the band kind of broke up a little bit on the next album. So it just sat there for a long time. <laughs> well, I know. I remember when we talked to Jeff, he did say that there was stuff that, he, I mean, I think he and Wetton were even working on stuff before Wetton died. So, I mean, if he wanted to finish that up and let us hear it, that would be fantastic. I know he's got a lot of stuff going on. I think Yes is going to put out another record or they just did. Or I mean, there is, so they're, they're working hard over there. So I, I don't know whether any of this stuff will see the light of day, but it is cool to hear. It's cool to hear that, your demos too, because you think, okay, here's how the song started. You know, just mm -hmm. in, it, ideas that you have, and here's where it ended up. Here's what it became in the end. Yeah, it's, it's always fun, especially songs that you really like. But honestly, this kind of spelled the end of the band mm -hmm. because they then they go out on tour and they had to go out on tour before the record comes out, and that sucks because not everybody knows the material or whatever. The band isn't selling out the bigger venues, and so. People are taking shit for that. The album isn't selling nearly as well as the first one did, so now John's taking a lot of guff for that. And if you're drinking a lot and partying really hard, you're probably not putting on the best shows. Mm -hmm. Killer stage with a big A frame, and there's Carl's drum riser, and then above Carl there's this big <laughs> stage, basically the letter, the line of the letter, a capital letter A, and that's Jeff <laughs> running around between his 28 or 29 keyboards and stuff like that. So cool stage. But it just it didn't work out. They did a bunch of dates like East Coast and Rust Belt and stuff like that. But then I think when they're supposed to go to the South and the Midwest, maybe further West, they just decided to cancel the rest of the tour because it wasn't hmm. as well attended. Yeah. Which, which I, I mean, I don't know. Are you losing money? When I know if you book a 15,000-seat venue and you only sell out 8,000 of it, that's not ideal. And they didn't charge for tickets the way they do today with all the different levels and everything like that. Yeah. So maybe they were losing money on it. But I don't know. I mean, I can understand it's a little embarrassing. But if you make money on touring, you should keep doing it. And that will only help the record sales. And maybe that will lead to better attendance down the road. I don't know. It, it seems strange to me. But John left. Now, did he leave of his own volition? <laughs> I was just going to ask that. Or was he shown the door? And was it the band who kicked him out or was it the record company who kicked him out? Mm -hmm. Fair question. I feel like there was, I feel like considering this was not a bunch of like fresh faced kids making their first record, it just sounds like the record company really was pulling the strings a lot for like seasoned professional musicians on this to me, man. Yeah. And, and there was a, Wetton had a quote, something about how, you know, the first record, it blew up. Like it, it was, it was this huge thing. Like they kind of just got together, you know, was it, was it kind of like a, not a goof, but was it more like just, Hey, let's just see what happens. Mm -hmm. And then, then it blew up and then it became from a band. It became like a corporation and you've got to pay all of these salaries and yeah. you've got this giant working machine that has to be fed. And then, you know, it turns out, well, this isn't fun anymore. And who's my old friend is here to comfort me. And that's, you know, partying and booze and everything. And then, so yeah, the, then the record company is like, no, wait a minute, we've got this thing and the thing makes money, but could we replace the parts of it that are not going along with the company line? I don't know. Well, and so in, in replacing the parts became necessary because, mm -hmm. yeah, John leaves in the fall. And in December, they're doing a tour of Japan. Most notably, they're doing a live satellite broadcast via MTV, the first of its kind ever from Japan. 
right? Mm-hmm. And Geffen has put a ton of money into it. It's great to hear like Carl and Jeff on episode seven, nine, and eighty talking about Westwood One Radio and bouncing the satellites all over because it had to go from here to there, from Australia to da da da. Is this thing going to work? We don't <laughs> even know. But they're not backing out because MTV wanted to do it, and Geffen's like, "This is happening." Right. So they had to get somebody else. Kalodner suggests Greg Lake because he is a bass player. Right. His his range is close enough to John Wetton's. And obviously Carl had his phone number, you know, so he's like, Carl, why don't you, why don't you give Jeff, I mean, why don't you give Greg a try? And he, he came in and did it. Right. And, and it still fit in with the whole super group, quote unquote, deal. Exactly. Because, you know, he was from it. It wasn't like you brought some other guy in who just sounded like Wetton. So on paper it worked, but I mean, I... I think I remember that when I was a kid and thinking, oh, wait, the lead singer guy's not there? Why do I care? I don't want to watch this. I just remember it sounds different. Why does it sound different? It doesn't sound like the video. It doesn't sound like the record. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's because kind of the most important part (laughs) to the average (laughs) consumer is that the voice just doesn't sound right. And I think the way Jeff described it was like financially it was successful because the tour of Asia went well. The thing with MTV was pulled off and and everything was happy. And there was some times where where Greg was a little out of his vocal depth and and it didn't sound great. But as quickly as he came in and learned these songs, I think he actually did very well. And he's a great bass player. So he, he performed it fine. But it was, again, it's a story of what could have been because if that was John Wetton, and people heard those songs sung and performed the right way, it might have boosted them yeah. even higher. I think it definitely would have brought them back into the the mainstream. Oh, yeah, I remember these guys. I remember the the first record that I liked. Maybe I haven't checked out Alpha yet, but I will now because I've seen this massive. Because I remember that it was a big thing. They hyped the crap out of it on MTV. Oh, you know, you got to see this. And so I remember watching it just because – you, it was almost like you had to. Again, you didn't want to go to school the next day. We're like, oh, no, I didn't watch that. Of course you were going to watch it because you had to. Exactly. You know, and it's a big event. I, mean, I think they said 20 million people around the world saw that. So, you know, you'd hope that when 20 million people see you, you sound the way you're supposed to sound, you know. Right. Uh, also, MTV did this cool kind of run up to the show where they showed the guys kind of in their home lives, you know. And, right. Um, they showed Carl on Tenerife, like riding his bike and practicing and playing with his infant daughter, talking about how one day she'd be a lawyer, which, of course, now she is. <laughs> But there was a Road to Budokan documentary leading up to it. And it showed you on Tenerife, you know, staying in yeah. shape and, you know, with your infant daughter on your leg saying, boy, I hope she becomes a lawyer one day that's going to save me some fees. And being able to see Steve with his kids. And, of course, you know, Virgil's not with us anymore. It just seems like it was an amazing time in your lives. And that's not something MVTV re-ran a whole lot. So I think just being able, not only being able to see the show, but to see that documentary, to see you guys in your element and getting ready for the show is something really special. Do you remember them coming to see you in the Canary Islands? Yeah, I mean, I, I lived in the Canary Islands for, for 23 years, you know, and I had a great time. I mean, I've been back in England since 2004. Uh, yes, I remember the MTV crew coming over and they had a couple of days off in the hotel and I took them around. And then we went up the mountains. I rode my bike. I went and practiced my snare drum up there, whatever. And we had a great time. And um, 
to be honest with you, um, it uh, is one of those moments that you don't forget to tell you the truth, mainly because it was spread over maybe four or five days they were with me. It sure. was it was extremely exciting. And I think everyone came off well in that DVD. And uh, one thing which is interesting um, is that my daughter actually is a lawyer. She ended up being <laughs> a lawyer. She fulfilled the dream. You manifested yeah. that. Yes, well done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's never done any work for me. You know, she tells me she's too expensive. Don't bother, Dad. I'll find you someone else but she is a lawyer yeah good stuff excellent and steve playing with his kids one of whom virgil is, is no longer with us you know and you know to kind of see them in their environments it was not part of the box set they, they put out a big beautiful killer box set really gave it the deluxe treatment of asia and asia last year which again i always kind of poo-pooed and said eh, i don't want it because it's not wet and it doesn't sound right but the box set is really amazing. All the little extras and fun things they've got in there. Amazing. They've got vinyl in there. They've got the CDs. So do you, I, I remember we talked about this, but I don't remember off the top of my head how much time Lake had to come in here and learn everything. It, it was like a month or, or six Jeez. weeks, maybe. Uh, it was It was not long, you know. And, uh, and the fact that he pulled that off is a testament to him because, I mean, I, I went back and watched parts of it for this, and, I mean, he seems like he's been there the whole time when yep. you see him on stage. He, he doesn't look nervous. He doesn't look – and, in fact, I – I think uh, Carl said something about there was there was one song and I don't remember what it was that he was like I can't sing that high we're going to tune it down right they didn't they forgot or whatever and he just went with it he didn't flip out he didn't he just he just he was did a it. pro yeah, yeah. I mean, he knows what he's doing he was confident on stage there's no doubt mm -hmm. about that I can't remember what that song was either Jackson but you're right it's like we reworked it so it would fit his <laughs> vocal range and then Jeff comes in playing it the normal way. And Greg didn't miss a beat. He, I mean, mm. and maybe it didn't sound as, as good as it could have, but he did it. He pulled it off. So kudos to him. But, you know, yeah. it didn't work out. It just didn't sound right. They wanted John back. And then Greg kind of poo-pooed them. It's like, oh, yeah, they wanted to stay. But that's not that AOR stuff. That's not for me. That's not what I'm into. I'm like, yeah. okay, pal. It's, you know, the, I'm pretty sure you were showing the door. But that, that's all right. <laughs> I, I, I left on my own terms, you know, musical differences. But yeah. But that was it. Steve then was gone. They brought in Mandy. Astro was, again, it had some great wet and downs compositions on it, but he was missing something, and it was Steve Howe, mm -hmm. obviously, to me. And it was just like, even if it was just some of the flourishes like he put on this that he didn't contribute hugely to, but he, he, he put his pieces in, I think the album would have been so much better, would have benefited greatly from Steve Howe. And then that was basically it for them until mm -hmm. they got back together in the, uh, in the 2000s. So, yeah, I mean, a story of another, you know, band that made it big in the U.S., but not really in the U.K., and a story of a band that could have been, but that's the problem with the super group. If things don't work out, everyone can just go back to their super groups. Right, right. Yeah, you ha you've got that lifeline. So the, you there isn't that all for one and one for all deal. It's like, yeah, I've got my other gig. You know me from this other thing. And, you know, it, and at that point in time, it, he had gone and done, uh, how had done Anderson Bruford Wakeman and how, and yes. yes, never really went away. I mean, they had that 90125 was huge in the United States. Huge. Oh, you can't, you know, you'd say, well, it wasn't the same thing, whatever. It was still around. It was still a thing. And then I, I don't think, I mean, I remember Emerson Lake and Palmer never really had big hits in the eighties. But, I mean, if you listen to rock radio, they were still all over the place. So, yeah, there was that lifeline of, if this doesn't work out, I can still go back to my original gig. Right. Except for Jeff, you know, because the Buggles was, were his original gig. 
Mm-hmm. And then he was in Yes for the Drama album before he went to Asia. So, you know, yeah, Steve Howe did GTR with our uh, with guest of episode number 92, Steve Hackett. Then he did Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, and Howe. Then he was basically back in Yes after that. Mm-hmm. Carl Palmer had three, and then they could also do the ELP reunion thing if he wanted to. And John Wetton, you know, could do solo stuff. He was back with Jeff a little bit at the end of the 80s. You know, they did the live in Moscow thing, and they recorded mm-hmm. some new tracks for the Then and Now, which was half compilation and half new stuff, which is, I mean, we had it, we listened to it, but it's its kind of weak if you think about it. Like, <laughs> we don't really have enough for greatest hits, but we don't really have enough for a new album either. Right. So we're just going to kind of give you both of them. You know, so he kind of, he went on to do other things as a singer, but Jeff had to kind of continue Asia. So he picked up a guy named John Payne in the 90s who we saw play. Uh, right. In the early 90s on the Aqua Tour. Not at all like, I mean, fine singer in his own right. Not at all like John Wetton. He kind of continued John Payne feature. I'm sorry. He continued with Asia featuring John Payne once original Asia got back together. Yeah. I, I don't know if anybody went to see them. I did get see, I saw original Asia when they got back together, but here's the thing. Even after Wetton died it, it, again, this is kind of a too bad. They were opening for journey journeys back mm. in the big time, right? They're playing arenas. They're playing big amphitheaters. So yeah, you're only maybe going to hear eight or nine songs, but for most people that's great. And it means you're going to hear, you know, your very favorites from Asia. So right. they got Billy Sherwood who took over for Chris in yes to come in and take over for john while he was fighting cancer unfortunately he succumbed to cancer and then billy kind of continued on now they've had some further lineup changes i think billy's no longer singing lead anymore but when we talked to carl asia was supposed to tour at the end of last year at the end of Mm -hmm. 2022 but i think that yes continued on which is Jeff's primary gig, right? And it pays. The Close to the Edge 50 tour was doing well. So, you know, they went to the U.S. and they went to Japan and stuff like that. So, like, that had to be postponed. So Carl did 50 Years of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer where he, like, piped in Keith and Greg's stuff. Because they're both both Mm. dead, right? So it was him playing live to his parts being piped in. And then I think they were supposed to tour this year, you know, to celebrate 40th anniversary, 40th anniversary of Alpha and all that. But you're right, Jackson, in that A, Yes is finally going to be doing their Relayer tour, which is what I was supposed to see. It was supposed to happen three mm-hmm. summers ago, right? It was like <laughs> summer of 2020. And then yeah. it got postponed for COVID. In 2021, it got postponed for COVID again. When 2022 came around, we're like, all right, it's the 50th anniversary of Close to the Edge. That was a much bigger album than Relayer ever was. Like, yeah. you know, Close to the Edge changed the game. Relayer was just that one with Patrick Moraz on it. So but Ed Gates Delirium, it's cool. It's 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 a favorite among amongst yes aficionados, but the average fan doesn't know it that well. Right. So they're finally gonna do that tour this year. And you're right, they are making a new album as far as I know. So as long as Jeff is busy with that, that's always gonna push Asia to second place, right? Mm-hmm. So and who were they God, who were they touring with? Oh, I can't remember who Carl said. Oh, it was, um, I think it was Alan Parsons. They were touring. They were, they were scheduled okay. scheduled yeah. to tour with Alan Parsons. Like, all right, well, that would be kind of cool to see. You know, will that happen in 2023 now? I don't know. I, and I, honestly, I don't know if I really want to see Asia <laughs> without John Wetton and without Steve Howe. Although I did once. And it was kind of yeah. just a goodbye. It was like, I wanted to say goodbye to, to John, kind of pay my respects. And to see what do they sound like without him. I don't know. I wish them well. I would like Carl and Jeff to be able to celebrate their catalog in some way, but I don't know if we're going to get it with a special release or not of Alpha or the original album because 
apparently, certainly the first album was part of that Universal Fire, the Fire of the Universal Records oh, no. storage facility. And Jeff's like, well, I guess we're not going to have a you know a 40th anniversary remax of that because that's a it's gone. That's a problem, or is it damaged? Or I don't know. And is Alf in there too? I don't know. I mean, no one's really come forward to say what's all ruined or what we can do or what we can't do. So I'm not sure. I, I would love this album to get a remix i think it could greatly benefit from a remix and make it sound better yeah, i mean especially if they could sit in especially steve howe and kind of you know guide it more toward you know what it was supposed to be or what they would have liked it well, to jeff be. can do it I, jeff I, can do it yeah i mean he, he, he i don't think it was jeff who was screwing steve over <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think it was the record company <laughs> jeff could could sit over the remix i mean he's the mm-hmm. He's age Jeff. He's at age Jeff. I mean, that's that's his legacy, even though now I believe he's the longest consecutively tenured keyboard player in Yes. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, 12 plus years, 13 years, something like that. Mm-hmm. I think he's been in there the longest all at one time at this point. But obviously his influence isn't that of Rick Wakeman or... Tony K, as far as mm. the history of the band's sound. He's great live. He was, was so glad to see them all play last year on Close to the Edge. So I don't know about Asia Live again, man. I, I don't know. Unless it was like you and I were there together. But mm. even then, it's like, am I really going to travel to see this version <laughs> of Asia? It, it's know. so far removed from the original that exactly. yeah, it would be it would be hard because basically it's just, it's pretty much like a tribute band now. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, wish them well. Mm-hmm. This is the moment in time, but honestly, this is the what could have been moment in time for me. The, the, the tour, the album, the way they broke up afterwards and didn't really get back together for 25 years. It, it's just too bad. And most people don't care about Asia. There was this pop band that had that one song, Heat of the Moment or whatever. And like we've said many times, on paper, we wouldn't be into Asia. And if you played some of these songs, like introduce me to Asia. Okay. Well, here's the last to know. Uh, and here's never in a million years. I'd be like, yeah, I, this is not the band for me, you know, but there's something about that first album that was just perfect. Just, mm-hmm. it just hit on every cylinder. And this one is obviously a bit of a, not a forgery. It's just a carbon copy. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's almost like it's a, they were almost they were trying too hard to do something that wasn't them you should have just in hindsight you should have just let them do what they did before and see what we come up with but i think there was that drive to because they had sold so many records we've got to do it again we have to do it again well how are we going to do that again you have to have radio hits it has to sound more polished and i think this is a this was a situation where there was too many too many cooks ruin the meal here cuz you you know you had the you had the band, you had Kalodner, you had the, the A&R people from the record label, too many hands in it, saying they knew best. Sounds like it. Yeah. Well, that is our take on Asia's Alpha, their second effort released in 1983, July of 1983, if you're from the United States, August of 1983, if you're from the U.K., no, it's not quite captured the same magic as the first one with the big hit heat of the moment and the big sales and taking over America in 1982, but there's still some magic there. And the opportunity to do the Asia in Asia show on MTV broadcast around the world, the first of its kind, well, that's a really special time. No, it didn't quite work out, but we're happy, so proud to have both Carl and Jeff 
on the show to talk about that time and to talk about that tour and something that maybe we missed out on because we were only 10 years old when it happened. Seeing it on TV might have been a big deal, but we could never see them live in concert. And so just having this little trip down memory lane on Asia Alpha, look, folks, I know what you're saying. On paper, Asia's not going to be somebody who I really want to be into. I just can't help it. They've imprinted on me the sounds they make. I just like it. And it's not hard rock, and it's not heavy metal, and it's not prog rock like their predecessor bands. It's just really good pop, good AOR music from the early 80s, which is when I was getting into music, when Jackson was getting into music, and it just hits us in the right spot in the brain, and we just like it. And so on the 40th anniversary of Alpha, we're proud to celebrate it and to hear from Carl and Jeff on their take on it. So as usual, folks, we got to know, do we get something right? Do we get something wrong? Do we miss the point? Do we leave out your favorite part? You have got to let us know. You email us. It's UglyAmericanWerewolf at gmail.com. You let us know about the bands, the albums, the concerts, the DVDs, the books, the rock properties you want us to talk about. And you can tweet us at Ugly underscore Werewolf or at ActionJack72. We're on Instagram. We're on YouTube. I think we're on Facebook somehow. MacWolf sounds right to me. Thank you to Pantheon Pods for making us a happy member of the family. Thank you to RareVinyl.com. Look, they've got some great Asia stuff there, guys. They've got all sorts of amazing stuff. Use the code UGLY, U-G-L-Y, and go pick up Alpha. Go pick up the Don't Cry single, or maybe a picture disc single, or something from Japan. They've got a lot of great stuff. Use the code UGLY at RareVinyl.com and save yourself 10%. And next week, will we finally have Mick Wall's interview on? I hope so, because he was great. Such a nice gentleman, an amazing writer. I've read a bunch of his books, and I think we've all read his articles or seen him on behind-the-music documentaries or what have you. I just need a little bit more time to get his show together and maybe clip together some video pieces for you all to see. And in the course of moving into a new home, I just time got away from me. So I did this episode as it is ready to go, and I hope you enjoy it. And until next time, to all of you rock and rollers all around the world, be cool and stay safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.